You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Friday, April 26, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me today are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Tara Santa Maria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. And we have a special guest this week, George Robb. My beautiful hometown, yes. Welcome, all rogues. Welcome to Bethlehem. I'm so glad you're here. George, this is the, this is the first SGU podcast recording in Bethlehem, yes. Bethlehem, right? No, wait, you got, you got to say it right, Steve. It's Bethlehem. Bethlehem? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Yeah, not Bethlehem or Bethlehem, but it's <laughs> Bethlehem. And there's a big debate. There's a big debate about what the pronunciation is and the correct pronunciation. Two syllables. Bethlehem, yes. Why is that? Bethlehem. It's, well, if you think about Bethlehem, it's like Bedlam. Same idea, sort of Bedlam, Bethlehem. Bedlam. It's based on that thing. It's that whole, I don't know. I don't know why it's that way, but people get very particular. And you can tell, like when someone says, oh, yeah, I lived in Bethlehem my whole life. It's like, no, you have not. <laughs> You're a liar. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, what, you know what Bethlehem means? Uh, 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 land of fried dough. You're pretty close. Yes. You're very close. In uh, Hebrew, yes. it's land of bread. Wow, George. <laughs> what the? Oh, my God. Home of bread, house home of bread. bread. And in Muslim, it's very similar. It's home of meat. In, in Arabic? So yeah, Arabic. Yeah, in Arabic? Yeah, yeah. Home of meat in <laughs> Arabic? Meat. Well, meat and bread were the same word for a long time, right? Weren't they like, uh, like uh, the... No, that's called meat cake. Meat meat well, no, it's meatloaf, yeah. But no, I think, I think there's something about meat... Like, meat didn't mean protein. Yeah. Meat meant, like, certain kinds of food in general. Sounds like, very confusing. It's like pudding. Like, pudding meant dessert, yeah. you know? Yeah. Right. But not pudding. So, like, so like bread, uh, or is it bread meant everything? Pudding is bread in the UK. It's like right. a kind of bread. Pudding, bread pudding. pudding. Well, no, 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 like, a pudding with your meal is, like, a, this doughy bread. It's like a yeah. popover. Oh, okay. Oh, popover. Right. Yeah. Oh, right. It's very confusing. So what are we doing here today, Steve? What's so happening? <laughs> I thought we'd start with a few news items. Okay. Does that sound okay to you? I, I'm so far. Good. All right. And then uh, George is going to interview us with the goal of making each of us cry. Yes. Again? Again? And then maybe we'll do a science or fiction. Okay. What do you think? Does that sound good to you? It's good, except right. for crying, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, Kara, you're going to start us off. This is, uh, again, this is one of those news items where I read the, the headline and I'm like, no. No. That's, that, that's, there's got to be more to it than that. That's what I did with the pig brain thing. Yeah. I yeah. read that and I'm like, that's complete bullshit. What was the pig brain thing? You know, you're just going to listen to last week's episode. Bringing pig... No, I don't listen to the show. <laughs> <laughs> like, bringing pig brains back to life after four oh, hours. Right, okay, yeah. Right, right. yeah, but I was told... Now, f- tell me if you have this kernel of information in your head. Like, after three minutes you have loxig- uh, oxygen deprivation... Right. I made up a word, loxygen. That means lack of oxygen. Okay. No, but after a lack of oxygen, after three minutes... Loxygen. 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 Your brain starts to turn to jelly. Yeah, starts to turn. Right, to but yeah. four hours later, like, how can there still be brain activity after four hours? You know, not all of the cells are dead within that period of time. They're only mostly dead. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but liar, liar. <laughs> Everybody move. <laughs> you know? 
So my question... They're still needing oxygen, correct? Yeah, so they gave them oxygen and nutrients, and, like, and there was a flicker of activity. It's, you know, it's interesting, but it's not a so game So there's nothing changer. there. No, they're not Didn't we go over this like last week? Yes, yes you, did. you did. You did. But this is different. This is the mind-reading this is very different. thing that yeah. comes up whenever you do anything where you're getting information from the brain. They're reading your mind. So yeah. how close are we this time? No, we're not reading our mind at yeah. all. You guys may remember, I feel like it was only a month or two ago, Jay did a Who's That Noisy about synthesized speech. And we had kind of a conversation on the show about how close we were if we're ever going to get to a place where brain-machine interfaces are going to be able to synthesize speech for individuals who either have never developed the ability to speak, or in this case, what they're really talking about is a potential for individuals who have lost the ability um, to speak because of damage, generally speaking, to the motor neuron. So here we're looking at a population, motor neuron disease, ALS, things like that. Maybe a stroke, but not a stroke within the speech center of the brain. This would not work if that were the case. Um, but a stroke that caused motor damage, so the person could no longer um, produce speech. And so I'm going to read a, a line that I read. I, I, I don't know where we, we posted it, but I was reading this article. And when you said this is the kind of article where I read the headline, and I, I thought you were going to, uh, to a different place. I'm leaving it to you. Yeah, you were saying that the headlines of this were really overblown. Right. But the article is called Speech Synthesis from Neural Decoding of Spoken Sentences. And there's this um, captivating paragraph that reads as, a key component of our decoder is the intermediate articulatory representation between neural activity and acoustics. This step's crucial because the VSMC exhibits robust neural activations during speech production that predominantly encode articulatory kinematics. Sure. That's perfectly clear. <laughs> P- perfectly clear. Yeah, this is a very hard paper no, to but read. But it is. That makes total sense. It does make science. total sense. Yeah, so basically... Yeah, it mentions tying the uh, neurological activity to the sound. But that's how how is that consistent? Because everyone's sounds is so different. So the, the, not that different. And the idea here is they're not tying it to the sound; they're tying it to the the actual physical motion that you use to make sound. Okay. So historically, any brain machine interfaces where they were looking at being able to produce sound from activity in the brain, they were looking at phonemes. They were looking at maybe individual monosyllabic sounds. But they were going directly from brain to speech sound. And what these researchers decided to do is have an intermediate decoder. So they used neural net artificial intelligence, and they used it at two stages. In the first stage, they asked people who were in hospital, they were getting a surgery because they had epilepsy. And it was a surgery where they put these um, electrodes on the surface of the brain to try and map where these seizures were, were popping up. And while they were doing it, the people agreed to be a part of this experiment. Five people in hospital over, I think over the course of a year, they collected this data. And they just asked them to read a bunch of sentences, some that they wrote for them. I think some of them read from Alice in Wonderland, and they were able to get a big database out of that. Can I ask a point of clarification? Yes. So all five of these people had the net on touching their brain. Touching their brain, under the skull, on top of the brain. Yeah. But they were not deep brain electrodes. They were on the surface of the right. brain. Yeah, it's, it's like a net, kind of, right? Kind of, yeah. And also, is this um, so? And they were having seizures. At the... They were in hospital because they were testing where their seizures started. Oh, That's okay. what the electrodes were there. These are seizure patients. Yes, so their yeah. skulls were. They're trying to they map seizure yeah, activity. Yeah. Uh, some people with seizures, um, if they're planning on doing surgery, like they want to whack out the mm-hmm. piece of your brain that's generating the seizures. You have to do really detailed electroencephalograms, so they do brain surface EEG. Mm-hmm. And they, 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 put they need a decent like a grid amount of data. Of, I think it's like 24 or 36 or whatever electrodes on the surface of the brain. 
wait till you have a seizure, and then they can narrow down. And they can really narrow down because the skull really attenuates the the electrical activity, and it spreads out, so it's harder to localize it exactly. And then they go in there and fry it with like a hot poker. Well, no, then they do surgery on it. Oh, they they remove it. it. Yeah, they, but the I last think, thing you want to do is remove healthy tissue, right, oh, or yeah. tissue that's not... Yes, yeah, so they also have to test it to see how eloquent is this cortex, meaning how much, what will you lose mm-hmm. if we took out, take out that piece of brain. So they literally put it to sleep and see what happens. Steve, Steve do, yeah. they, do they sometimes cut the corpus callosum connecting the hemispheres yeah, that's to, to prevent the propag- yeah. That's to prevent it from spreading, yeah. Yeah. but not the, this is to prevent yeah. the origination this of the seizure. This is to take out the focus. So the give seizure. me an example. So, like, let's say they put a part of your brain to sleep. What would happen? So what they're, really, they're really looking at two things. Do you like stop? They, he said they test what, what's going to happen. Basically they basically put half your brain to sleep and then test your memory and your speech. Then they put the other half of your brain to sleep, test your memory and your speech. Like and then they say, all right, so if we, you know, if we take out you know, you know, a piece of the medial temporal lobe or whatever from, the, from this side of the brain, what's the most deficit that that could produce? So the, what you hope is that the side of the brain that's having seizures is already kind of scarred and not functioning that much, yeah. and so you're not going to really lose much. But if you lose a lot, then they'll be reluctant to, take, yeah. to do surgery. And that. everything in between, right? Because like, under cer- certain circumstances, couldn't your brain kind of remap and relearn certain things? Yeah, but this is kind of basic functioning. You know, oh, okay. You're really going to lose a lot too much function. This is a, a population of patients who, for their own treatment have brain surface electrodes put on their brain. So we're almost always doing extra research on them. While we got those electrodes in there, you know, let's yeah. do these. Would you be willing, would, yeah, to, would you be willing yeah. to let us do some other the research? The hood's open. Let's go see what's, <laughs> yeah. what's because, under there. Yeah, you're, you're never going to, like, you can't do this research otherwise. You can't, right? Yeah, you can't do, like, an elective. Like, nobody's going to agree right. to get a brain yeah, they put surface. They put one of those, like, swing hat latches when they pull the piece off yeah. so they can open it up. They again. do that in mice. In mice, they'll actually make, like, a clear part of the skull plate so you can look oh, in, like, a that, window. Now, if that and wasn't dangerous, <laughs> that would be cool. And, Jay, you could see the brain pulsating. Oh, yeah, every time. Yeah, they, <laughs> That's they so breathe. sick. Like, why does it have to pulse like that? Because it's full of blood vessels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I can't help but think it's kind of like a bunch of, like, rubber tubes that will eventually wear out. Yeah, they that's do. what blood vessels are. Well, that's what I don't like about that's it. That's what strokes are. <laughs> stroke, yeah. That's a... It's, it's just a reminder that we're all going to freaking... So the good... Ne- meat machines. So the interesting thing is none of that has anything to do with this story. I'm sorry. So you imagine there's these five patients that are in the hospital and they have this... Um, these electrodes are on the surface of the brain. They're not deep, so they're not quite as specific as maybe the researchers would like, but it's still really helpful. Um, they happen to be over the, the ventral sensory motor cortex, the superior temporal gyrus, and the inferior frontal gyrus. It turns out later that that ventral sensory motor cortex, very important. Um, and so what they decided to do, these researchers, was a little bit different because they did a two-stage investigation. Historically, as researchers are trying to figure out how we can use a brain-machine interface to synthesize speech, they could only use single syllables, like I mentioned. They look at the motor activity in the brain. They try and synthesize speech from them. These researchers decided we want this to be a little bit more specific, so we're going to do this two-stage. First, we're going to put this um, this electrode map, and we're going to have these individuals read sentences out loud, and in doing so, their tongue, their lips, their jaw, and their larynx are all going to be working. And they're mapping the motor movements of speech and figuring out where in the brain those are controlled and trying to get really high fidelity there. After that, then, they're mapping the movement of the mouth to the speech sounds. So they're not directly mapping brain to sound, 
brain to motor movement, motor movement to sound. Does Sounds that like make a good sense? plan to me, so, right? Yeah. So, and, Kara, bef- yes. before you said, so the moving of the muscles, the physical muscles, is a different part of the brain than, than the cognition of speech? Yes, that's yeah. correct. They're totally separate? So it's, it's they're complicated. Yeah, yeah, I can okay. give you the very very quickie. So your language part of the brain has two main areas: Wernicke's area, which is basically your dictionary that translates ideas into words and words into ideas, and then you have Broca's area, which is a specialized motor cortex, which basically gives you the ability to physically articulate the words. Right. And then there's those two are connected, and then there's you know parts of the brain that feed into and out of that central language area. So that's basically it. But then it's, you still have to be able to move the muscles that you're then telling to move, right? Yes. People with Broca's aphasia, for yeah. example, are, have damage to Broca's area, and they cannot produce speech. So they have halting, so they're, stuttering they, yeah, speech. They, because of the physical? No. No, because the brain oh, is damaged. Because the and so they're, language centers. Yes. Yeah. Um, but remember, the language center is complex, so right, the, right. the Broca's area... It's the output of your language center. Are you go, saying broken area? Broca. B-R-O-C-C-A. Researcher, Paul Broca. Carl Sagan's book, Yeah, Broca's brain. So people with Broca's aphasia have difficulty with motor speech, but people with Wernicke's aphasia have uh, a symptom that people call word salad because they have difficulty comprehending speech. So even though they can physically produce speech, all the words are like mixed up and jumbled and, and it sounds paraphasic errors they substitute letters substitute words it sounds very strange yeah. and can they like sometimes write but they can't speak like they, they'll write clearly but that's they're... something called agraphia without alexia that is a very specific lesion in the brain cool. it's like prosopagnosia like it's a very specific right, part of your right, brain right. that so has to be what's hurt. the problem there is the connection between vision and language so oh, okay, okay. they can they can write but they can't get the visual input into their language area so they can't read um, so, so basically what they decided to do is a two-stage speech um, encoding. And they used a neural net to do this. And they were able to actually make it more robust by taking previous recordings and kind of increase the data pool that the neural net was learning from. Because, of course, this was only five patients. In one of the patients, they did an extra step where first they coded them speaking out loud... And remember, these are otherwise neurotypical, otherwise healthy patients. They have epilepsy, yes, but they don't have any damage to their speech centers or, or to the motor um, speech, the neurons that are in charge of, of the motor muscles. And so a second stage that they did in only one of the patients is that they had them just pantomime that they were speaking but not produce any sound just to ensure that somehow the neural net wasn't actually encoding the sounds themselves but was, in fact, encoding the, the motor movement. It's going to break a baseline. Yeah. yeah. It's the, the, I do like the, the idea that... Um, so basically trying to read the part of the brain that's interpreting the speech mm-hmm. is, you know, it's we're a long way off yeah. from that. Like, we have no way of being able to decode that. But... The, the brain function that correlates to motor movements is a much lower hanging fruit. So this is actually a real clever approach. It's really smart. And Should so, we play the results? Yeah, let's play the results. Uh, Steve's going to hold the microphone up to his microphone. We're not going to tell you what they're saying. Just try to think in your mind what you think. So this is a result of, of the of this is synthesized, this system. Speech. synthesized speech. Ready? The proof that you are seeing is signable in wolves. Maybe play it one more time. All yeah. right, hear it again. The proof that you are seeing is signable in books. Is it the proof you are seeing? The proof you are seeing is not available in books. 
The second half, half was a little difficult. And that's 100% synthesized from brain activity. 100% synthesized speech. And so what they decided to do to test how well this is, how well people can understand this is they used Amazon Mechanical Turk. It's a common program that people use to get uh, research subjects online. So people go online, they agree to participate, they usually get Amazon credit or something for their participation. So this is just like a random sample of individuals online. And they played these different um, synthetic speech uh, things for them. And it wasn't that bad. I want to say that all of the synthesized speech was recognizable by at least one person. And they found that on average, it was something like 70% recognizable across you know, all conditions. And a lot of times, the things that were mixed up were similar sounding words. One of the ones they cite in the study is rabbit versus rodent. Like, those were mixed up quite a bit. Um, but, I mean, it's an interesting step. But, of course, there are a lot of open questions, right? A, will this even be useful for the population for which it's intended, which is individuals who have motor neuron damage, so their brains are working just fine, but they can't get the information from the brain out of the mouth. They can't move. The muscles themselves are weak. Yeah, they can't move the jaw, the tongue, the They can think a, a sentence... And it could read and produce... Not yet. The, okay. So, but and we what, don't know if that's ever going to be possible. But what is that... I, I still don't know the connection between that, what we heard. Like, what is the patient doing to make so that So what sound? the patient is doing is reading that sentence. Then all that information is going to into a database. And then later the neural net is looking at the brain's reflection of the motor movement. So it's looking at how the brain is encoding the physical movement of the mouth, tongue, They're reading while moving their mouths. They're reading out loud. Oh, they're reading out loud. They're reading out loud. But all that the neural net is getting information from is how the brain is encoding the signal to move the mouth, lips, tongue. And then it uses that that information to synthesize speech. And remember, they tested on one subject. They told them not to actually produce sound. And the efficacy went down a little bit, but it was still pretty good. But... That's brain surface electrode. That's brain, yeah. And, and you heard the quality. But they're yeah. saying deep brain could be better, you know, if you could go deeper and find... Electrodes deeper, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. What about, what about um, for, like, for deaf people that have never synthesized... So that's the other language, open... The biggest have, open question yeah. is, can wow. people who have never spoken yeah. ever do this? Yeah. In my view, that's not likely with this type of technology because you have to have some sort of schema, some sort of motor pattern already in your mind that when you, if you think about the brain machine interfaces, we see like the monkeys that play video games and all they have to do is think the movement. It's because they can think the movement, it's telling their arm to move even if their arm is paralyzed. But their whole life, their arm was connected to that movement. But if you never developed those kinds of skills. Hold on, Hmm. hold on. So, but there are other studies which Mm -hmm. show that even if it's an extra arm, True. Your so you can brain train it can out. adapt to it, so there isn't. You're not limited to the you know the physiology that you're born. But with. But that's also very different than somebody who never. was never born with it, and then basically that part of their motor cortex got filled in by nearby. Yeah, but apparently areas. the plasticity is enough, though. Mm-hmm. There's enough plasticity that you could have extra arms, you know, or you could have a tail, even if you never your tail your brain will go, okay, there's a tail there now. Yeah, but are... don't you think that that's kind of like if you had an extra arm, you have left arm mapping, you have right arm mapping, you have extra arm. It's just utilizing what you've already mapped. But if you are missing an arm and you've never had an arm and you've never developed any motor control of It'd any be a lot arms, more difficult for sure. It, right? You would want to do it in a very young child. Yeah, the you younger you are, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the better. The more the plasticity. But, but Kara, is, expl- I mean, explain that the monkey, the monkey thing. Well, there are some really cool studies too where they would like 
tie monkey's fingers together. Those were early studies, remember? They would tie a monkey's fingers together, and then they would look at what was happening in the brain, and eventually these two fingers would be mapped as the same finger on the motor cortex. Um, Or, like you said, they could graft an extra finger, graft an extra arm, and there would be motor cortex representation and sensory cortex Surgically graft like an extra. Surgically graft, so long as they could control it, you know what I mean? But... For something that they never ever developed, I do think it would be harder. Maybe it's well, not impossible. I, mean, I, but it would be I, much I think it would be like your non-dominant hand, right? Yeah, you can control it, but it's never going to feel as comfortable as your dominant hand. Right? Yeah, kind See, of. That's the what way... Jamie Lannister's having that problem. Yes, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. I don't. He know needs therapy or something because he can't use his left hand. No, he can't. He can't use his right hand. His right hand. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> but the thing, the bottom line is though that there. There's no theoretical limitation to 100% complete brain-machine interface going both ways. It's all a technological limitation at this point. Well, and that's even what they say in this study over and over, is that like it, it's yet to be seen whether people who never develop speech could utilize this. It's yet to be seen whether people with motor neuron disease or a stroke could utilize this kind of technology. Yeah. If the database is big enough, it may be the case that you never have to map to them. Or maybe you do what many people with motor neuron disease do now, which is bank their own voice. Mm-hmm. If if they're banking their own voice anyway, then they're banking the information necessary for speech synthesis. Yeah. So then you're actually mapping to their own brain instead yeah. of using a database of a lot of other people's brains. The thing that they notice, though, is that it doesn't seem, as you asked at the beginning, Bob, to be as specific as we would think. You can use a bunch of people's info, tell it to the AI, and the AI can help yeah. you speak. So yeah. that's really interesting. Um, but both of those things are yet to be seen. I do think that probably the more an individual feeds into this, the better. And they're kind of saying that almost everything else is just kind of an engineering problem. Yeah, yeah it's point, basically an engineering problem. Pretty point. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's go to a, a little bit of a lighter topic, although this is deceptively yeah. heavy. Somebody actually wrote an article about what would happen if Thanos successfully killed half of all creatures in the right. universe. This is, this is written by Robin George Andrews on Gizmodo. I didn't do a, as much secondary and tertiary research because I'm, I'm afraid of spoilers. Mm-hmm. All right, if anybody spoils Endgame, you are, what, what, what can You're we do? Banished You're banished from the SG. Banished. No spoilers, no spoilers. You're going to be one of this half we of did, the population. We did, not, we did not see it yet. We're going we to We will see declare it. you anathema and cast you into the outer darkness. <laughs> you can tell me all the spoilers you want. I don't know. Really I'm curious, how many people saw the first Infinity War? You have to actually give us an auditory feedback. <laughs> How many, how many have already seen this, this end game? Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll be, we'll be watching you. Yeah. Um, okay. The sales so, are ridiculous, right? It's like it's already a so, billion dollars. It's a good... It's no, good no, spoilers about box office. You don't even want to know if it's good? Baba-de-ba-baba. So it's all about Things slip out. Things slip out. Believe me. You're not having sex That's why I'm here. Because things slip out. So I gotta keep him on his toes, guys. So the main the main thing was what happened, you know, after Thanos snapped his fingers with his magical gauntlet, and what happened afterwards. People, some people are calling it snap apocalypse, which I think is pretty funny, <laughs> or snap catastrophe, which is also kind of kind of fun. The understanding from the first movie, though, was that it was sentient life on the Earth, right? Wasn't that your takeaway that it was sentient life? Sentient life but, in the universe. Universe. It was no, in the universe. I'm, I'm talking at the scale of the uh, of the Earth. We right. lost, but. Apparently, Kevin Feige, who's the, the president of Marvel, he's saying that's half of the population of each individual species on Earth. Everything from humans to bacteria and, and everything in between. What? So that's, that's what the, the president of Marvel said. So we're going to go with that. We're going to go with that. <laughs> well, hold on All a right. second, because that's complicated. That one statement alone could take a long time to unpack. Because if he was killing half the bacteria, that means everyone's uh, flora 
it, half of it's gone. Right. Maybe that's, he just killed all the bacteria in the dead people. No. And, and that's, Jay, that's part it's of... Random. That's, that's part oh, of what, it's random. That's part of what we're going to talk random. about, Jay. Now, if you, if you remember, <laughs> now Steve may disagree, but if you remember, Thanos said that he wanted to do this because it had to do with resources that are available, to like, especially to his population of people on his planet, and uh, to prevent societal collapse, he wiped out half the people, and things were so much better because, because it was such a, a less of a draw on the resources. So that's, mm. that's kind of why... That's what Thanos said yeah. in, in the movie. But a lot of people are saying that that's a horrible idea. Because it might seem like, yeah, that's, it was a sign of what a great bad guy he was because he actually almost sucks you into that argument at some point in the first movie, right? You're kind of like thinking, well, wait a second. All right, he's, he's an asshole and stuff, but this might actually be a, a real, it might have some benefit. You know, he was kind of like sucking you into well, Bob, his, his worldview a little bit. Are the ones exactly, that truly right? believe that they're good guys. And he thinks that he is making a sacrifice. Right. For the, oh yeah, yeah. He was he was he was great. But Ken Lacovera really disagrees with him on, on this thing. He's a paleo paleontologist at Rowan University. He said that that is a terrible idea on many levels. So so why why would it be a bad idea? What would happen to Earth if half of all species disappeared? So here's some of the things that would happen. Um, half of all individuals. Half, right. Yeah, Individu- each species will lose half of the individuals. That's yeah. that's okay. that, that's the plan. So the. One big thing is that it won't last, especially for people. Because think about it. In 1960, there's about 3 billion people on the planet. Uh, 40 years later, we were, at, we were at 6 billion. So if you wiped out half, half of the humanity, in 40 years, we'd be back where we are right now. So it's so kind of... do it again. Oh, it's even faster, kind of, it's because kind of, he didn't right. wipe out our technology. Right. right. So it's we kind have, of we have all the knowledge we right. had. It's kind of a lame solution. Yeah. Um, what about all, food? We'd have half the resources, but there's That's also the half the people. You're, you're basically taking so like, everything down. So, like, you have... Yeah, you're right. It's like you're still at that, that level where there's not enough resources. So I think yeah. the president of Marvel is wrong. He just yeah. killed the sentient yeah. species. Is it makes no, you can kill yeah, half the cattle to help our resources? I mean, that's a, yeah, it's kind of a weird thing that, that they went with. But, but, where do you, but where do you draw the line? What, I mean, what about viruses? What about plant life? Draw the line of virus. Plant life, yes. Plants are alive. Yep. Yeah, so he's killing trees, too? So half the trees are gone? That's yeah. ridiculous. That's, that's nuts. That's right. So, but what would happen? Yeah. Let's just roll with this. Just roll with this, Jay. Yeah, okay, right? so I'm, what would happen? I'm rolling. So, so a lot of times, an, an, another example is a company will go into this virgin territory and let's start killing all the beautiful little seals. And and <laughs> this has happened. This has happened. They go in and they start killing animals. Do they say that? Before no, they go no, in? no, not out loud. Not out loud. But but it has happened. They they go in and they basically wipe out very quickly half of the population of certain species. So what what has happened? When that happens, um, these these species automatically will get into like maximum population growth overdrive. Mm. They, so they, they actually swing back up to where they were relatively fast. But with less land, though, that's the problem. With their, less land? Yeah, yes. because they're, too, they're, like Bob's saying, like they'll, they'll, strip, they'll strip burn like well, a... a right. Yeah, if they lose habitat, they don't recover. Right, right. Yeah. right. right. But if, right. You just, if you don't deprive them that's of habitat, the but you take away, you just kill them to harvest right. a lot, their... Yes, a lot of times you're just, you're just killing them. them, and if you're in the same environment, they're going to have maximum population growth, and they'll, they'll kind of come back very quickly as well. So another problem with Thanos' idea is species imbalance. So if you think about it, there's a lot of species that they just basically spit out kids, thousands and thousands of kids, and they just like, see it, good luck, and they walk away. But then there's other animals that, that the, the parental care is a huge part. They have a, only a few kids, a few offspring, and they really take, they invest a lot of time. So that's a huge imbalance because if you're, if you're, having, if you're laying 10,000 eggs, and if you're just having one little cute little panda cub, that's a huge imbalance. So, so there's a huge advantage to these species, like insects, Spiders, like frogs, mm-hmm. like rabbits. They're, they're going to they're gonna regain their population very fast. For example, there's a species
species of frogs that lays like 20,000 eggs every season. They could basically lose half of their population and be back to full strength in one summer. I mean, in one summer. Yeah. So that's a huge advantage. So if, for them, it's like if, the summer of 69 every time. A... <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, Bob, like what about that frog they brought to Australia and it just took over? Didn't have the any... The toad? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it. That, that toad, like... That was a Simpsons episode, wasn't it? <laughs> there's, a guy, there's a guy in Australia that drives over them. Whenever he sees one on the road, he drives over it. Yeah. And you yeah. see him changing lanes, like going against traffic to kill the toads. Yeah. Is like that what Thanos frogger. did? What's that? That's pretty much what Thanos did, right? But there's also a habitat takeover, because if you have these speedy reproducers like insects and frogs, and uh, they're like, okay, we're back to full strength. I'm like, oh, look at that habitat over there. It hasn't been filled. They can go over there. So what happens is this. Janet Houle says, she's an expert in animal behavior and, and human evolution. She said, the end result would be a simplified global ecosystem with rare animals becoming rarer and less genetically diverse. So that's another problem. Another huge issue would be outright extinctions. We know there's tons of that's species the first out there. Right? Yeah. Like, for example, there's, there's uh, 23 Hainan gibbons. Um, you might cut that in half. I mean, they're probably... They're done. This, yeah, they're done. Bob, this, a lot this, of species will be this news article is exactly why it's so freaking hard to have scientists and skeptics be the heroes in movies. Because imagine if you had the scientists talking about this while the Thanos thing was being, you know, being uncovered, and they're like, does. well, Thanos, you can't do it, man. But that and would here's make why. him a hero, And then right? Thanos goes, no, but what I'm saying is the, all the Thanos. cool shit won't happen. Uh, Thanos will be like, you're right, I can't do it. <laughs> and then the movie doesn't happen. <laughs> Billion dollars. So, or he says, I'm a bad guy, I'm going to do it anyway. No, but, but he no, thinks but, he's a good guy. Uh, yes. Okay. I should yeah. have seen the movie yeah. before. So, but, all right, so besides outright extinctions, there's a lot. Also, of course, these are com- complicated interrelationships. So there's a lot of unknowns. For example, predator-prey relationships are complicated. You can't just say, all right, half of you are gone and half of you are gone. What's going to happen? It's hard to actually figure out and predict what's going to happen. Uh, microbes. Jay, you mentioned microbes. That was yeah. very good. Microbes are, and bacteria are incredibly important and fascinating. So we'd and all get diarrhea. So, so what would happen? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the bacterium, our, our body's bacterium, with half of that was, was gone. We would adapt, but you could have some funky bacteria taking over because yep. there's open habitats inside of your gut as well. You know what so I can't help what to happen? think of what? in this specific example is arguments for a flat tax. It's almost the exact same thing, right, when people argue, but it's fair if every single person get ta- gets taxed the same percentage, and then you realize very quickly that it really affects the weakest, you know, the poorest and the richest in very different ways. And it's the same thing because some people would argue just, but it's half. So how would it, how would it matter? It's half for everybody. So that's what Thanos says. He says, what's more fair than this? Everyone has the exact same chance of surviving. And this is exactly why. What is the, what is the number you think? Is it like third? Is it like fifth? Like what, what would be, I mean, it's not as a a nice dramatic moment of I will kill about a sixth of humanity. No, there is, there is no flat number. That's the point. It has to At be all. different for different species, for different species. in order right. to maintain right. good kind of homeostasis. Well, that, that's the other thing is his, with all the knowledge that he had with all the, the stones that he had, he would be able to get into those details and actually make it all, you know, but they don't put right. that type of information in a movie to make people well, like us happy. he wouldn't be a bad guy well, if again, he actually did save humanity, It's right? so much less dramatic too, Jay, when it's like, I will kill half of bacteria unless they are reproducing bacteria. And then it's two-thirds. And then the other one-sixth will be for the... Unless, of course, they're... According to the Heidi Weinberg. You know what? Get back to me in 20 minutes. It would be like a program. There'd be lots of if-then statements, you know? But he'd have godlike intelligence, so that wouldn't be much of a problem. All right. 
I, I just re- uh, reject the idea that he was killing half of all life. I think he was killing half of all sentient Me beings. Too. But even if we were restricted to that, you still have the same problems. So that means for every sentient race in the universe, half is the correct number. Like, so if there was right. a billion people, you'd a kill similar. half. If there oh, was a hundred billion people, you'd kill half. Because his argument was that sentient people have like gamed their planet. Well, just, yeah, they're over. Yeah, their they're overpopulated. Yeah, right. gotcha. yeah, but regardless, but regardless, if you if you cut it in half, no matter what it is, your resources, your the availability of resources will be much be- more beneficial. Of course. But what, but what if you're not resource limited? But what if you no, not well, yeah, if you're not resource? Yeah. Know, what if you're like what if you're a uh, uh, Star Trek Prime, the, the new one, the the, the, the what's it, the Kelvin Discovery. Kelvin line, and you're the Vulcans, and there's 35 of you, right? Yeah. There was like 30, 30, 40 Vulcans once Vulcan got right, sucked right. into the thing. There's 40 Vulcans, so now there's 20 Vulcans. Like, yeah, they're screwed. Yeah. But my yeah. assumption is that because this film was written for an American audience, we're going to be Americocentric as we think about it. I'm sorry, for an Earth audience yeah. even. We're going to be yes. Earth-centric Earth as we think about it. I'll give you that. It was yeah. written for an Earth audience. And so yeah. we're thinking about how we as human beings have completely, have been so destructive of the planet. And, and we're using that scheme. That's, that's the irony in this, is because we're, we're kind of all Thanos's right now, because we're... You know, the diversity that we're doing to species and mm-hmm. the effect, the, the uh, species that are becoming extinct because of us, it's like we all have our little gauntlets on and we're kind of doing it. And in some ways, we're doing it, it's worse than what he would have done. I mean, we've got whole species going extinct well, he's because doing of the human job. activity. If it really were just sentient beings, right, then it would just be human beings, mm-hmm. right? And so he's doing the job of a pandemic or an, mm-hmm. of an epidemic. Right. That's the idea. Yeah, but right? speaking of which, so the one kernel of truth, I think, to Thanos' premise is that um, some civilizations may actually have like a renaissance following, right. losing half of their numbers. And interestingly, that's exactly what happened after the Black Death hit Europe. That was two-thirds, right? Yeah, it was, like, it, was, it was a lot. But what happened was labor was cheap, and so you, they just threw labor at all problems. Like, I need somebody, whatever, to dry out this sheep wool. Okay, here's 10, 10 you know, peasants to, to do that. Um, but when two-thirds of Europe died labor was in shortage. So they had to come up with machines to do labor. And so it actually spawned a lot of innovation. And so Thanos kind of has a point when he says that this will be a kick in the ass to civilizations. Which, by the way, is the same rationale that the Shadows had in Babylon 5 where they were ostensibly the bad guys the whole time. Then he's like, yeah, but you know, we're just kicking over the anthills because that really helps you guys bring your civilizations along. Come on, 20, 20 great series if you have But the Spanish it. flu, which I know the numbers weren't the same. They were severe. 20 million around the world. Yeah, I mean, they were yeah. severe, but they weren't the same in terms of, yeah, you know, percentage. percentages. Did not have that kind of outcome. It just sucked. The Spanish flu just ruined lives. <laughs> yeah, like it didn't kill enough, and there was like bodies that they couldn't dispose yeah. of. It was a massive... So everybody know about crisis. this? 19, 1918, right? 1918. Yeah, and we should have called it actually the American flu because yeah. it started here. Yeah, 20, 20 million <laughs> people died of flu. During the, yeah. But guys, you know, we can look at it from a... Uh, 30,000 foot view with no morals and not care. But, it, you know, the, the thing that we're really discussing here is the, the moral imperative that he should not murder trillions well, or yes. quadrillions of, of sentient beings. Even if he's right, who is he to decide that yeah. half of all sentient beings yeah. right. I mean, that's basically, it's like after the fact eugenics. What do you even call that? Yeah. It's genocide. Yeah, it's just, it's genocide. Except it's, he's choosing arbitrarily, right? He's just saying half of everybody. Culling, yeah. All right, that was cool, though. That was a really fun news item. That was, like, right up our alley. So an article was published recently in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, on how to deal with medical misinformation, which is, you know, obviously something that we do. That gets right to the heart of the skeptical movement, countering misinformation 
online and, you know, in the world. This is specifically on medical misinformation. So the authors um, did a reasonable job of addressing some of the issues, but unfortunately, it represents exactly what's wrong with mainstream science dealing with issues that they just don't deal with on a regular basis. And this, you know, this is exactly why a skeptical movement needs to exist, right? Because if they knew what they were doing, we wouldn't even have to exist. So here's the problem, and you know what this is going to, you know what I'm going to say, right? So the core of their problem is that they approach misinformation as a knowledge deficit problem. Oh, we've, like, yeah, the SICOM movement has um, figured this out, like, literally 10 years ago. I I read that, like, this is, like, so 1990s. You can't just give people more data and hope that they'll make better decisions. I keep reading that a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's more... Yeah. (laughs) We're going to be interviewing the director for Behind the Curve next week. So it'll be out in a week or two. And... Kind of felt like the Psycom people in that movie had the same issue. It's like uh, it's okay, it's fine, but it's a lot of like knowledge deficit kind of approach to to like if we just you know teach science, you're still going to have flat earthers. Right? I was I was right. just listening to a news podcast a couple of days ago, and they were covering the New York State and New York City measles thing. You know, I'm listening to it. I'm like, cool. They're they're covering a yeah. topic that I am very well acquainted with, you know, we were all, all of us are, you know, been fighting against the anti-vaccine movement and everything, and they covered it, and they not once mentioned the, act, the anti-vaccine movement. Right. Yeah. They were just bananas. like, oh, in this, in this community in Brooklyn, it's a lot of Hasidic Jews, and they're, you know, and they kind of get into that, and they're talking about the little pockets here and there. Yeah. And they missed the most important thing of the whole thing. Yeah. And then I'm, then I'm like, why the hell didn't they get a skeptic on that right. freaking yeah. show? They just have some person that's covering it. It was like I find myself asking that question. Frequently. I think you know my one argument for the knowledge deficit approach is that I think in in us realizing that it, it's not just a knowledge deficit. Yeah, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's, you know, it's like 20% or whatever. Uh, yeah. And it's issue specific. It's issue specific for sure. And yeah. I do think that if we, it, it comes actually down to younger, like education. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about earlier childhood experiences sure. and learning critical yeah. thinking skills, but also learning some information. Like if children grow up really grasping mm-hmm. around earth, Yes, they might get caught up into uh, a flat earth movement later in life, but if they really fundamentally understand the science before they go into it, then they'll realize that in order to believe the earth is flat, a lot of things have to be unwound well, in their mind. Part of the solution is not the solution. It's not the, it's, Steve. and the problem is everybody keeps going to that. Well, let's just give them more information. Yeah. Steve, didn't we say on the show a while ago that um, in order for pure education to make such a dramatic impact on these types of beliefs you would have to get like like your master's or phd because that's the the threshold if you map out just the degree of science education people generally believe more pseudoscience as their education increases until you get to a postgraduate science education level and then it drops off dramatically so just having a college education does not protect you from pseudoscience in general. But more than anything, that's yeah. an indictment of how we educate in this country. Well, I think that but there's other social factors in there, mm. too, because the, the fact is... So, first of all, like, when people get educated, it's a Dunning-Kruger thing. They have enough knowledge to be confident enough to have out-of-mainstream views, right? But they also are thinking about more things. Is that across the board, Steve? Is that, like, geogra- geographically and demographically across the board? Yeah, like, that's, that's Dunning-Kruger pretty, has been replicated. Pretty, pretty much. It doesn't matter yeah, where you're from? Or, okay. Yeah. So... 
Yes, if you, if you have a PhD in a science, then you, you have fixed that problem with yeah. knowledge. Absolutely. But we, the problem is the knowledge deficit thing, right? We teach people in our modern educational system, which is getting a little bit better, mm-hmm. but we teach people what to think. We don't teach them how to think. Right. And that's a big difference. So like their solution was we need journals to directly correct misinformation in the public. And I'm like, that'd be nice. I'm not against that. I do think that scientists need to directly engage with the public on the public understanding of science, including debunking myths and misinformation. Absolutely. But the idea that that's the solution to this problem is incredibly naive. Well, and it's also, we have good social science to show. I know, show. we know the answer. It's not like this is but, unknown. And we have good social science to show that when you, when you publish something and it has, you know, X effect, and then you publish a retraction, it has like... Yeah, it's almost negligible. Like 0.2 yeah. X effect. You know what right. I mean? Right, there's, there's also research looking at debunking myths, right? So if you mm-hmm. tell somebody, this is not true that can have an equally bad react response. So people are thinking, oh, maybe that's true. Why is he bothering to tell me that it's not true? Um, it's, it's very complicated, the relationship between giving people information and the effect it has on the information. And the more itself. nuanced it is, the yeah. less likely it is to, yeah. Can somebody, like, who wrote the article? There's t- two physicians who wrote the article. Right, I mean, can anybody, like, contact JAMA and be like, hey. Well, I mean, you know, I wrote, I wrote an article about it for science-based medicine. I'd like to submit it, a version of it, you know, to, to JAMA. JAMA. Yeah, the, we'll they'll probably happens. get multiple submissions yeah. for this article. Yeah, I mean, I hope so, but... The thing is, and again, I had the same sort of reaction to behind the curve and to a lot of other things where they're sort of nibbling around the edges or they're just focusing it from a very narrow perspective. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, okay, you're going to confront vaccine you know, hesitancy or the anti-vaccine sentiments or whatever. Pick your science denial or pseudoscience. First, you need to reform K-12 science and just general education, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Until you get, until we're, we're you know, squirting out high school graduates who have mm-hmm. a pretty thorough education in logic and critical thinking, I don't think we're going to make a dent. Why yeah, couldn't there's... Thanos do that? You know, yeah, like right? K through 12. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, the fact Knowledge. that like you don't take philosophy, you never have to take philosophy right. in your entire academic career unless yeah. you're a philosophy major is a bad thing. Right. It should be core. Or how about this, how to access and, and evaluate information online? Oh, yeah. Right. How to just media exa- literacy? How, media yeah. literacy. Yeah, how do you evaluate? Just that. Evaluate resources, so mm-hmm. and then just psychologically cognitive biases. You know, people need to know what the Dunning Kruger is and confirmation yeah, bias. Most and, kids don't take psychology yeah. in K through twelve. They don't right. take they need logic. College. They need psychology. They yeah. need media savvy. Yeah. They need scientific literacy. You need all of those things. That's working why we together. wrote the freaking book. That is why. To, that's to, exactly, to make it a exactly. compendium. Exactly. So maybe. Which is also available right over there for those. (laughs) Maybe book number two is a K through twelve companion to our book because we definitely wrote it for adults. So yeah, Yeah. we write it for kids. Um, And then they talk about social media, which is like yeah, but you know, social media is just a, in my opinion, it did you know put jet fuel to misinformation, but it's a reflection of the culture. It does reinforce it, Mm. but it's not really the cause of these problems. These problems predate; they all predate social media. It just means, all right, the, the, yeah, the editorial filters are down. So now we've got to get in there. We've got to get in you know, the bush with the misinformation people, and we've got to fight it on the front lines. And I do agree that scientists need to do that. And there's a lot of reform of journals and journal editing. And there's a lot, we've talked about this all the time, the problems with journals, with uh, scientific journals. So, Steve, my friend tweeted something the other day yeah. that was like, you know how in movies when somebody gets a superpower where they can read other people's minds yes. and everything's just like horrible for the first like 20 minutes of the film yeah. because all they can hear, that's Twitter. 
No, I agree. That's just too <laughs> noise. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of professionals think it, they don't want to dirty their hands, yeah. or it's overwhelming, yeah. or they, they like get scandalized, or they get they get exposed, or liable, or what, uh, they're they're liable to to whatever. Professionals now, scientists, physicians, need to be trained how to exist on social media of as a professional. Course. And and we don't get any training no, to do like that. A big part of, oh, yeah, so what's the oh, answer, Steve? Yeah. What's the answer? And this is all the above. We need to do Reform so... Reform K through 12, what else? We need to re- and we need more uh, scientist engagement. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need to teach more critical thinking. All right, but here's the final thing, point mm-hmm. that I wanted to make. So I do get frustrated when I read these. I'm like, oh, we've been dealing with this for 20 years. But... My final thought is always, I'm not doing my job, right? I think skeptics, the skeptical movement, if we were doing our job, this would not happen. Why are we not getting our message to mainstream scientists so that there's, JAMA doesn't publish an article that's 20 years out of date it's in beca- science communication? It's because of incentivization, right? It's the same thing when you see certain types of political debates where one person just says whatever they dream up and the other person's like, yeah, but I want to play by the rules. And because they want to play by the rules and only, like, you know, cite things that are legitimate, they get crushed. Mm -hmm. Because if you just can make anything up and you don't have any moral consequence of it, you know, it's it's like hitting below the so belt. You're totally right. It's, it's like the very same, difficult it's the same for us. That Superman has like it's a, it's a, it is exactly the same thing because when we play by the rules, mm-hmm. we're, we can't. There's nothing shifty that we can do. There's no way to be a shifty skeptic. Like you and have so to the, right. the best thing that I always try to tell people to do when we're doing science communication training, I mean, obviously there's a lot of things about SciComm training that make you better at knowing your audience and not trying to sound like a dick and you know all these things. But I think one of the really fundamental things is like. Take a lesson from social psychology. Read all of the really brilliant articles that have been written over, like, at this point, a century of people learning how to market. There is a good science to marketing, and there are tricks and tools that you can use to make sure that your message is effective. And you're not being shady. You're just utilizing the science to ensure that your message gets out there in the most efficient way possible. But for some reason, the SciComm community is very siloed in, like, hard sciences, and they don't ever look to the social sciences yeah, I agree. but that's the science of science communication right. like but even when speak. we do it's, we're, not, we're not having our message heard we're as, as deeply as it should well everyone we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week Bombas Socks you know how often do you think about your socks does this ever ha- happen to you Steve you open the drawer you're trying to find a pair of socks and you find the Bombas socks and it puts a little smile on your face because those are your favorite socks that you own. They are, yeah. they, they really are. They're really, they're really special. Yeah, it's amazing how much, you know, a good, really good pair of socks can affect your quality of life. These are seriously the most comfortable socks I've ever worn. They're, they're super soft. Uh, they come with arch support, a seamless toe. They're cushioned in all the right places. They just really feel good on your feet. They come in different styles like casual, business, uh, stylish, if you want. You could wear them at the office, just walking around the house, or at the gym. And best of all, for every Bombas purchase you make, Bombas donates a pair of socks to someone in need. And socks really are a much-needed item at homeless shelters and other places like that. Yeah, I love that they do that. So guys, buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash skeptics today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash skeptics for 20% off. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right. Evan. Oh, oh boy. Uh, Here he goes. Here we go. And he's pissed. So Evan's, Evan's got his <laughs> pseudoscience segment. This one Yikes. is interesting. Evan, say it. Pseudo 
Cheyenne. <laughs> Just said it once. Couldn't say it better. A Kuwaiti academic. Anyone heard of this one? Uh, she has claimed uh, she's invented a cure for homosexuality. Oh, boy. As if there's a cure. Right? Based on Islamic medicine, which is also known as prophetic medicine or Muhammad the prophet. I mm-hmm. never knew that this existed. So that there was like, something called prophetic Is it medicine. like faith healing, kind of? Effectively, but right. It's, yeah, yes, it's, a, like it's a little bit of that. It's, so it's certainly, you know, education of Islam, Muslim, and those components. But there are also actual physical things happening. Well, uh, her name is Dr. Miriam Al-Sohel. She has an honorary degree from the International University of Turkey. That sounds perfectly legitimate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to, you know, six months. And... Wait, in what? An honorary degree in what? No, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I'll get back to you on that. We should hand out FGU degrees. That's right. Uh, And she claims that there have been trials, and she was involved in these trials. Here's what she says. This is a quote. I discovered therapeutic suppositories that curb the sexual urges of boys of the third gender as well as the fourth gender, which is butch lesbians. Oh my God. Okay. So, so wait, they're saying that there's there's men, heterosexual men, heterosexual women, right. homosexual men, and for some reason just butch lesbians. <laughs> so what are lips like? What are lipstick lesbians? Well, we have. She only goes as far as four. I imagine there could be more, but that's as far as she took it. And for transgender examples. individuals. So what's the honorary degree? So, gender. Come on. Yeah. What, so they're, they're saying, though, that they can cure any kind of homosexuality. Not any kind, only with the butch lesbians. With a suppository. No, no, boys as well as the butch It works on the butch lesbians as well. What? But they, with a suppository. The, the test, right, with a suppository. Go on. <laughs> do, do I have to explain what a suppository is? Do I have to explain what a suppository no, but wait, no, is? Is it... I don't know. I, I, I can't help it. Like, what are they, Do I even need to ask this? What are they actually sticking up their butts? Well, you should see. There, there is video on YouTube of this particular interview that they pulled oh, this article. Thank goodness. And she holds up two, one for men and one for girls. What do they girls. look like? They look like tampons for your butt. Yeah. I mean, that's really what oh, it's okay. It's not like a glycerin type of thing. It's actually like... Oh, it's a physical... Yeah. So wait, but what's in it? What is it made out of? Yeah, what is it made out of? Let's find out. Hope. <laughs> Wait, is anything you stick in your butt a suppository? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be like a, a like a. Well, no. Some things are foreign objects. A suppository yeah, if it's is medicinal. Medicine. Yeah, if it's medicinal. I thought a suppository had a had to move up. No, no, no. It's just a little. It Haven't looks like you a seen my videos, Jay. Come on. <laughs> Here's, Explain all this stuff. Here's the thing. Although I don't know exactly what sort of concoction might be in these things, there is a specific purpose that the good doctor is telling us about and why this and how it works. You see, or you see, and you didn't know this, but I'm telling you now. People of the homosexual persuasions have, uh, well, anal worms that feed off of semen. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what happens is the suppository goes up there and it exterminates the worm. Therefore, no more urge to have sexual... Wait, so butch lesbians have anal sex with men? Look. look. Get out of your ivory tower, Karen. I'm so confused. She doesn't understand gay, does she? How do you... I don't think she gets it. Karen, there's a lot she doesn't understand. Clearly. How does you know, they, first wow. off, get so, your money back on that degree or whatever. Somebody has <laughs> never, where are the worms? Let me see the worms. Like, can we see it happen in a Petri dish? Like, <laughs> what is going on with oh, this? Oh, she's done studies. Jay, here, she's done studies and she quote, quote, this is science, 
Nothing to be ashamed of. The sexual urge develops when a person is sexually attacked and afterwards persists because there is an anal worm that feeds on semen. You see. How about this? Leave gay people the f*** alone. How about that? Stop. I'm over it. At this, I would say it's really gotten to the point where it's, this is absolutely insane. Oh, this is unfortunately several Middle Eastern countries have laws against well, still against homosexuals, and this sort of stuff is embraced well, and, and put out there are by the media. Obviously, more progressive here, which to an extent we absolutely are. The that, I hope so. Yes, yeah. the American Psychological Association is very clear and has been for several decades in our ethics code that conversion uh, therapy, conversion. yeah, the conversion therapy is unethical. But only in how many states is it illegal? Seven. Uh, 17 states have passed laws yeah, against it, that, it right that's now. That's getting better. It's getting better, it's but it's still, it's it's still only still illegal it's still in 17 brutal. states. I know, it's ridiculous yeah. to think about it. In order to receive the treatment, you have to be conditioned nutritionally. You have to eat a diet of bitter foods to increase your masculinity. For the men, don't know about the butch lesbians. Uh, bitter foods increase masculinity. Uh, also, um, you want foods that are sour and a little bit salty. Um, Oh, uh, the, ingredient, the ingredients for the cure are made the same for both sexes, so that answers your okay. question, Jay. Okay. And, uh, you know, they're color-coded, so you can make sure that you don't put a, a female's one in the male and so forth. Because then it wouldn't work. <laughs> I'm still really confused as to how a gay woman got a male anal sperm worm in her bum-bum. And why she Why would that make her a lesbian? Yeah, I'm so confused. This is such a specific fetish for this doc. It's like so... I know. How did she think about this? That's what I mean. Like, she, she obviously wants to stick stuff up boys' butts and, and dyke and, and butch lesbian... You know what happened? Sorry. Like, I feel like this is one of those prime examples of the plural of anecdote is not data. She may have seen a patient once who had pinworms and who was gay. And she put those things together and said all gay men the worms have worms. Yeah. That's called delusion. That's yeah, really that's delusional. Called, yeah. she, she must Jay, this is science. She said so. That's right. Look, science. This is science. She said, and there are worms that do exist in our bodies. Of course. Yeah. Obviously. But, you know, I always so, take it too far because I'm like, okay, so what's happening? How does the freaking worm tell the person who is actually not gay to yeah. be gay? How does the worm it actually communicate that? Yeah, your so brain. the worms are now, this is, the, the worms are controlling. Yeah, They're like mind control parasitic worms. Yeah. There was a Futurama episode. Talked so about stupid. that very, very specifically. Don't, don't you just get violently angry when you read stuff I mean, like this? Of course. It's, it's a massive human I mean, rights violation. You know, if there was an anal worm that, like, gave me abs and great taste in clothing, I would <laughs> shove it up there. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, the fr- like, give me two. <laughs> seriously. I love Georgia saying this, the man with the best taste in clothing. Oh, it's very sweet of you to say that. No, but I mean, like, seriously, like, that's like, the you know. The, oh, now, Jay, just it's as an aside, there are parasites that can affect cognition to certain mm-hmm. degrees. But none but that make you gay. No, yeah, so this no. is all plausible. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just say, I'm just saying that that, that that is a fact. Yeah, George, we're now up to the segment of the show where you ask us embarrassing, I mean, interesting questions. Interesting questions. <laughs> I have no sperm worms. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've been like super fortunate, the six of us actually, that we have traveled to some amazing places. We've been to Australia, we've been to New Zealand, we were just in Manchester back in October. Uh, I think individually we've gone to all kinds of different places. I leave Scotland. for Africa in like two days. You leave for Africa. Yeah, I'm in two going days. to Namibia. Oh, Namibia for what? I'm giving a talk for the first half, and then I'm going on safari. Wow. Yeah. So, so we've traveled, and we've had we've had numerous experiences that have been really 
fantastic yeah. yep. and unexpected sometimes. And I was wondering if you could each think about what is the one sort of particular experience that maybe you had. It might not have even been necessarily traveling any, traveling any place, but it might have been at a performance or meeting someone or doing something that that we have experienced because of the scientific outreach that we do mm-hmm. that was sort of unexpected. Like if you could, if you could talk to your high school self and mm-hmm. say like, just so you know, in 20 years, you're going to be, you know, for me it was like being on stage with Bill Nye and him like laughing at a joke I said, you know, mm-hmm. where my the 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 17-year-old version of myself who watched Bill Nye just kind of went like like there was this (laughs) moment you know and that was Nexus a couple years ago and you know subsequently like he he knows who I am and that's just but that was this distinct almost like a cognitive dissonance moment of like how did this happen Mm -hmm. you know or let alone being in Australia being something like that what are what are what are moments that you can think of that are sort of these like defining like how the hell did I get here? I have one. Go for it. And it doesn't involve travel, even though I've been yeah. all over the world for science sure. communication. And, you know, I was recently in Hong Kong and I and went to China and I recently got to spend like two weeks in Morocco, which was a lot of fun and like kind of smaller towns getting to know people. But I still think the thing that like when you said, how the hell did I get here? Going to Stephen Hawking's private birthday party at Kip Thorne's house. Yeah. All right, give. Cool. How that, how that I mean, happened. how do you? That's really cool. It's so really explain. cool. You yeah, found yeah. out something cool about him. Too. I wrote about him, and then Kip Thorne banned me from his house. So that was less cool. So who's Kip Thorne? You weren't supposed to. Kip Thorne is yeah. one of Hawking's best friends. He recently just won a Nobel Prize. You guys remember? Yeah. Just a couple years ago now. Um, so he's a Caltech um, physicist, and. I'd wrote a story about Hawking that in my mind was actually very flattering and it was very kind of personal. deferential, but it was also very personal because instead of writing about physics, I wrote about ALS. And I think it really humanized mm. him in a way that Kip has always been, as his best friend, um, incredibly protective over, over Stephen. So I think that he was not a fan of how human he came out in the story, how fragile. Really, because he was quite sick. I mean, he was at that point controlling his, speaking of brain machine interfaces, the way that they work now is usually with a muscle. Some people do it eye tracking, but he had lost so much uh, motor control that he would twitch in his cheek. There was one muscle that he could twitch. And so they had like a little sensor sitting on it. And that's how he would control his computer. But yeah, I sat with him for, for a while. We spoke. Um, he said some sentences and I wrote about it. It was really beautiful. It's raining. I think it was like Easter, around Easter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I blew my mind. I, how did I get there? I'm not a physicist. I'm not, you know. Yeah, how did you get there? Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Was it, was it an invite? Was, in, was it like, it was an invite. Said, so, I think so it was Casey Cole or, or maybe it was Carol Tavris, but I think it was Casey Cole who was a, <laughs> Preeminent science writer Did you and read professor. Did like thirty times to make sure it said what you thought it said? Yeah, it no, like... it was a verbal invite. Oh, and at wow. the time, I was actually dating a physicist at JPL, and he was with, um, oh gosh, who, uh, with James Cameron on that ship when he was collecting yeah, in, was, in the Mariana Trench. Really cool. deep stuff, um, yeah. But I was like texting him and bragging to him about how I was at <laughs> Stephen Hawking's birthday party. That's cool. Um, no, it was amazing. Yeah. All right, party with Hawking's. Who can top that? What do we got, boys? I can't talk <laughs> <laughs> Well, should have saved her for last. <laughs> Sorry. I think the most unexpected thing that we did recently that I would never have guessed would have come out with this was you know, being consultants for the CIA. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
which I know some people in our audience don't like that because they don't like the CIA, but whatever. They're a legitimate government organization, and that's, you know, we have, a, I think, a legitimate purpose as skeptics to both learn how they operate and to also, you know, introduce critical thinking from our perspective, which is, you know, what they want, they were looking for. So it was fascinating. So it was good to be able to talk to CIA officers and people, you know, uh, as far as you get on the inside. And, well, and let's just, back up. How did this happen? Did they get in touch with you? They contacted you us out? and said, hey, we'd like to have you guys come down to Langley. What do they say? We've, we've heard of you. We've listened yeah. to your show. Yeah. You're recommended like by someone else. There's a handful else. of fans. Yeah. Yeah. So individuals have listened. Actually, the guy said, I'm watching you right now. <laughs> <laughs> do not turn to the left. He stole yeah, my joke. I I was going to say, their first words were, we know what you've done. <laughs> yeah, that laser just, yeah. Just it was very out. humbling. I mean, you know, it's funny because you say this a lot in your show, George. There's always a version of yourself that's still the the teenager. That's the oh, imposter yeah. syndrome. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and I'm like, as, as you know, I don't, I don't know how to put this. Like, I, I, don't, I don't have a big ego attached to this. Like, I work very hard to do this. Um, it's now what I do for a living. It's, it's the, next to my wife and my my kids and my family like this is the most important thing i have going on in my life but i try to be as humble as i can you know i don't walk into the cia and be like yeah goddamn right you know i walk in there and i'm like whoa (laughs) like what why am i here how the hell does a guy like me end up there and it really is we are there's a lot of skeptics out there Mm -hmm. and and our friend in the cia is a listener of the show and he's a skeptic he's a real skeptic well, and it wasn't and, just him. Like when we went to that conference. Oh room, yeah, there was three. There, there was, was the, a bunch of people. Yeah. yeah, there was three. There was more than three, I think. But but we so we made contact with these people, and it's it, to me the humbling thing about going to the CIA was it wasn't talking to people in the CIA. I was talking to fellow skeptics, yeah. mm-hmm. which was really cool. Yeah. And it and I think that's my thing. Like it wasn't the CIA. It's just the camaraderie that we have. Like you know, I'm friends with Iran in Australia and Richard Saunders. And we're friends with people. I mean, the, the commonality that we have because of skepticism is like, it's glue. It's right. really cool. It's, and I'm watching people on our, on the SGU Discord, and I'm seeing people from all over the world talk to each other and hang out and, yeah. you know, have meals with each other and play, you know, talk. It's just, we yeah. just have this thing in common that, that makes it a but global Jay, don't community. they also produce their own podcast? Yeah, yeah. The, they have an internal podcast. Which the only... People within the CIA yeah. have yeah, it's an internal, classified podcast. It's an internal. So yeah. they're podcasters as well. Yeah. So they weren't. They weren't asking for podcast nope, consultation. They were. Oh, they were. Oh, they were. Yeah, they were. Right. They were okay. asking us for just a skeptical feedback, right. you know, and yeah. they also were there to. They were there. It was also partly PR for them. Yeah. Like they were sure. using us sure. as a PR outlet. Gotcha. No question about that. They gotcha. were like, "Ask us questions. We'll you know give you the show, and yeah. we'll, we'll we'll tell you stuff." And, but then they also literally consulted with us about podcasting, mm-hmm. you know, okay. which like, okay, like, why are you asking us? Aren't you like the CIA? Like, don't you have like millions of dollars at your disposal? But apparently people in the CIA could pick up pet projects like this and they're like, yeah, go ahead and do that. We're not going to give you any money or anything, but go ahead and oh, do that right. if you want yeah. to. Yeah. But yeah, he did so, ask us once if money were no option. Yeah, he object. said, give us the cheapest way we could get this done, and then give us the money is no object way. Mm-hmm. So that tells us, yeah, so either they're going to get no funding or someone's going to be like, yeah, here's $20 million. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was no like, all right, so I'm going to get about between. 10 grand. Yeah, yeah. there's no in between. Yeah. So it was like either it's going to be crazy. real or it's just like they're like on a shoestring budget. George, to further answer your question, though, they are interested in producing a podcast for the public. 
Yeah. As well. We think it'll be a great idea. Paint, paint me a picture of like, you guys all drove down together, I assume. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I flew. You flew out, so you met there. And like, so you're outside, this is Langley, or this yeah. is, Langley. so like, this is like the thing with on the floor where yeah. it says yes. Central Intelligence, the right? The icon thing yeah. with that. You that, can't bring your name? phone, so they did yeah. a, like a special photo. But like, so you're out, so you're outside, you're outside the building, yep. and like, what happens? Well, first you gotta, you drive down, and there's a separate entrance for guests. So all the people that work there, they're right. just, ba- they're lined up, and they okay. have all the fencing and the guards, yeah. and they're driving through. We got our badges. So yeah, so there was almost no guests when we went. We just park. And we walk in, and they knew who we were. You, so the guy that's giving you your badges and stuff, is he, like, can you tell this is a badass? Or is it no, just, just like an executive? Like, this is just a yeah, guy guard? It's no, it's like a toll booth because we're okay. just like a guard. All right. they, but they're locked down. There's like no... Yeah. You know, yeah, they're behind the bulletproof glass. Everything is like they need they need this identification. Like I don't right. have your name on the list. Like we're not going anywhere until right. they, yeah. they've cleared every and single one of us. Your badge has your social and you have to punch in yeah. your social yeah. every time you go okay. through. And you have a sponsor in the building, so they're they're like, Did you invite these people? And like they already know because we're already yeah. in the system. They yeah. know they already know who we are before we oh, walk in there. Oh yeah, you have okay. to get so you get, to the bathroom. You get past that guy and you yeah. and you drive in or you walk in or whatever, and then like the first person you meet that is your your official sort of liaison. He was kick ass. I mean the guy So what's this guy? The main guy in military gear, he would just take your head off. He just, he was like a, definitely a guy. Yeah, who's this? The guy that, the guy that was sitting behind the desk. Oh, the internal guard. Oh, yeah, yeah, the internal guard. Yeah, yeah, he was yeah. like, no, Okay, so that's no like a badass. But your guy, would you, would you, if you had to put yes. him in a lineup of like, this guy probably works for the CIA. He was military. He was military. I don't think you'd ever know, though, because right. he was wearing, like, jeans and a T-shirt. Yeah, but he, and oh, he had, like, a... Like he had an, a total military He had, like, a, a Marvel... Yeah, he was um, casual. Like, casual his, his thing that has his badge was, yeah. like, Groot or something. Oh, okay. You remember? Oh, That's, yeah. Is that Marvel? But they, I think they funnel most of the people that go there... Yeah. That you go into the the marble foyer. It's the big one that right. you've seen mm-hmm. um, pictures and yeah. presidents and everything going on in there. Yeah. And the cool thing was, is like just in the foyer alone, like you have to you have to like take it in because there's a lot of stuff. First, right. the seal, this gigantic yeah. seal in marble. Yeah, it's really it's really beautiful. And then they they explain the stars, right? They hand carved. There's two people in the world that have hand carved stars into the wall that represent fallen CIA agents. Right. The man and his and his son. When he died, his son took it over. Wow. It was like a stonemason. And yeah. they're perfect. You it's just look like yeah. five pointed stars. When, yeah. they, when they come and they do it, it like people. Well, it's a it's, it's a an event. Yeah, it's a ceremony when they. So they have the book of all the fallen uh, agents, and it was officers. so cool. The officers, I'm sorry, they're right. not called agents. My whole, they really whole life that of, of uh, you know, like saying why not agents? Hollywood poison. They're not yeah. CIA agents. Why, did, why are they? CIA why not agents? I have no idea. They, Hollywood got it wrong. So Hollywood think okay. The world got it wrong. Wow. So they're officers, but not agents. Mm-hmm. And they don't have badges, and they don't carry a gun. A weapon. Yeah. Not in the CIA. No, not in that building. Those people are analysts. Most of right. it's like, yeah, they're know, Jack computer. Ryan kind yeah. of. <laughs> if people have given us any criticism for our now relationship, I guess you can say, with the CIA, I, I kind of come back with them at this, like, okay, then which podcast would you have preferred that they reach out to to sort of yeah. on on this endeavor? I mean, you should be you should have some level of comfort that they actually. Reached out to us, I think, rather than who knows what kind of yeah. podcast. They yeah, have. being interviewed by them or interviewing them does not mean that we fundamentally approve of every single action that yeah. has ever been yeah. taken and by the CIA. We're not helping them knock over governments or something. You know, we're just trying to get. No, if anything, I looked at it like we're we are interfacing with the critically minded people. Well, first off, it is a very critically minded organization, yeah. but these are like the cream of the crop critical right. thinkers because right. they are they're lessened in it. You know, they they yeah. are. All right, give me another, give me another, someone, Bob, anybody, give me a... Sure, yeah. um, if I could talk to myself 20 years ago, I would say, buy Google stock, buy Facebook, that's, <laughs> that's the things I would focus on. But if I, you know, after a while, I would say, um, going to see Weta in New Zealand, for me, oh, yeah. was a, 
It's like a kid in a candy store. I love visual effects. I love costuming. I love um, makers. Prop. I'm, I'm a prop builder. I, I'm, for Halloween, I'm always building stuff. So to see the professionals really do this stuff, it was it blew me away. So Weta is the Lord of the Rings. They do all the special they, effects they for Lord all, of the Rings. Yeah, they've they do. done visual effects and special yeah. effects for tons of movies, like, more than you even know. Disney and they are nine. they are amazing. They're, so you're walking around. It's like it's like Disney World, and we're going very fast, and you can't take pictures. So I was dying because there was so many things I wanted to take a picture you of. You also have to sign like three NDAs. NDAs. So can many we say this? Can we say this? Like, are we? We're, yeah, we can well, say that. We can say we had to sign NDAs. Yeah. But and here's the thing. It's so like nice. so. Yeah. So we're walking through this. I mean, it's it's acres and acres of building of just. Sword makers and and costume model makers designers. and costume yeah. designers and they're and they're working on these, actually these huge World War One figures where like a World War One soldier's boot is like this, but it's completely lifelike. So it's these massive giants. Then we're like walking by the stuff, and everyone is incredibly generous and cool, and and they have all these things set up where you have to sort of not only do you have to work, are you supposed to work on the stuff you're supposed to work on, but then in your free time you can do whatever you want because you have this facility of of lathes and saws and laser chalk and whatever they have. It's like insane, the, the amount of stuff they have. So everybody also has their own creative stuff yeah. that they're making. So, oh, this is a sword that I made for, you know, the second Lord of the Rings movie. And here are just these, like, robots I made. And this guy's named Fred, and he, you know, he doesn't, he can't say the word the. So, you know, and you're like, <laughs> so these creative and everything. And here's the six of us walking through, and we've signed this release and six people that basically talk for you know one to two hours a week about everything they experience. <laughs> we're not allowed to say a word of this to anybody, <laughs> and we're like, ah, oh, ah, oh, like trying to remember it, but you can't remember because you can't talk about it. And then it was like it was the it was the coolest and yet most torturous thing too yeah. of like because we could we could probably talk for five hours. Yeah. About what yeah. saw. There was I mean there were the public facing parts. Yeah, right. So we could right. talk about those talk about and take that. a yeah. few pictures. The general tour. Yeah. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, KiwiCo. Hey, guys. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that makes learning about STEAM fun. STEAM, that's science, technology, engineering, art, and math. With a KiwiCo subscription, each month, the kid in your life will receive a fun, engaging new project, which will help develop their creativity and confidence. Yeah, these projects are all really, really fun. I've been doing a lot of them with my daughters, and they're age-specific they allow them you know, to, to build these cool science experiments. So they have fun building it, and then they get to play with it. And it's an, they learn something about it. They learn something about pressure or temperature or kinetics or, or electronics. It's it, whatever. It's really a great learning experience, a lot of fun. They could do it on their own. I enjoy doing it with them. Either way, it's really great. So it's, it's a, really is a great gift and it's a great project that you could do with your kids or any kid in your life. So every month you'll get a crate and inside you'll find all the supplies that you need for that month's projects. Detailed, easy to follow instructions and an educational magazine to learn even more about that crate's theme. KiwiCo is offering the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit KiwiCo.com slash skeptics. That's KiwiCo.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. George, what do you think the theme is? Handsome drummers. 
Bethlehem? Almost went with that. Is it Bethlehem? Is it? It's Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Very well. Properly said. Wonderful. Yay. Ooh, Bethlehem. Ooh, I better do well. I better do well, yeah. Yes, George will last. Okay. So here they are. You ready? Yes. Three items about Bethlehem. So there are 39 cities in the world with the name Bethlehem, 28 of them in the U.S. Number two, the original Bethlehem in the Middle East has a mostly Christian population today, but is under Israeli control. And item number three, Bethlehem, PA, was founded on Christmas Eve, 1741, by David Nishman and Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. You, you had to make that name Zinzendorf. Up. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. All right. What? We're just going to go down this way. Wait, aren't you going to poll the audience first? Yes. <laughs> but before that, I'm going to poll the audience. George, you're going to do your one clap. So, yeah, so we do a single clap. So let's just practice one clap together. When my hand gets to the ictus, which is what it's called in conducting, we're going to all clap together. So let's practice. Ready? One clap. All together? Ready? All together? Okay. That's how you vote. So. Okay. So if you think that the 39 cities is the fiction clap. 39, not true. Okay. If you think that the Bethlehem being under Christian, uh, being Christian but under Israeli control is a fiction, clap. And if you think that uh, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf is the fiction, clap. Okay, two and three. Two sort and three, a little. Close. Two and three. Bob, what do you think? Thirty-nine cities in the world, twenty-eight in the U.S. Who knows? <laughs> no reason to think that's true or false. So, but maybe that's why you picked it. Okay, let's go to the next one. Uh, Middle East, mostly Christian population. Yeah, maybe. Founded on Christmas Eve. Uh, Zinzendorf, I think you saw, you found that. And like, yeah, that's, just, that's an awesome name. They're not going to believe it. <laughs> the Christian population, the, the original Bethlehem in Middle East fiction. I don't know. Okay. I mean, I have to admit that's where I was leaning. The 39 cities in the world with the name 28 of them in the U.S., usually when he does numbers, they would be like at least an order of magnitude off. And I don't think that there are 2.8 cities with the name Bethlehem in the U.S. I also don't think there are 280, but there could be. 390 in the world doesn't seem that high, but 280 in the U.S. There's 50 states. Yeah, I don't think there's multiple Bethlehems in every state. And I kind of felt the same way. You, it's like you found that David Nitschman and Count Nicholas Vaughn. And, and it was founded on Christmas Eve. It's like so ridiculous. It's, it's, it's like too perfect. And I feel like it's got to be true um, because it's so ridiculous. Does, this, this town does... Christmas big. I yeah, mean, so, Bethlehem. well, I mean, it's Bethlehem, exactly. It's big. You mean, it's Bethlehem. Bethlehem, yes. But the original Bethlehem in the Middle East has a mostly, I bet you it's mostly yes. is Jewish population. Right. So that's what I'm going to say. That's the fiction. Okay, Jay. All right, when I first heard uh, the one about 39 cities in the world, I mean, there's a lot of repeat names, um, especially between New England and, and England. And Old um, England. But I, coincidentally, I did a Google search on Beth, Bethlehem recently for looking for a movie theater. And lots of shit came up. Yeah. So I, I don't know, I guess that one's true. I agree with what Kara said. Like, you know, what's the, what, what could be wrong here? The second one here about the Middle East has mostly Christian population today, but is under Israeli control. That there's something about that, that that is rubbing me the wrong way. Like, is it mostly Christian population? Man, I just don't know. That's a hard, I just don't have the geography in my head. Uh, the last one, Bethlehem, PA, found on Christmas Eve. Yeah, no, this is like really. When, and and, then, and from my perspective, these are these are rare names. But back in 1741, you're going to have names that are going to be foreign because a lot of people were coming from Europe. David Nietzschman and Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. What's a, what does von mean? From. Oh. From. All right, I'm going to go with the second one. Uh, Middle East has the mostly Christian population for that 
line right there. Okay, Evan. Okay, I will agree that uh, the uh, one for Bethlehem in the Middle East being the fiction. Bethlehem is in the Middle East, mostly Christian population. I don't think so. Uh, under Israeli control, no. It's in the West Bank, is it not? And is that not under control of the Palestinian Authority? Exactly. I believe that is fiction. Interesting. Exactly. I, I, I feel I should recuse myself because I know for a fact that one of these is correct. Is that okay? No, is that okay? Don't ruin it for them. Right. Take your chance at not losing So I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to agree with Evan that that the Middle East Bethlehem, there's something fudgy in yes. in there in terms of its. I don't know. We might have sweep because somebody's I, being swept. I could see that being yes. <laughs> the fact that Steve is smiling is not that's, that's right. <laughs> Let's see how what, what influence you had over the audience. Okay, yes. George. All right. So now what do you think? The 39 cities, is that the fiction? Ooh, oh, that one, one guy. Interesting. <laughs> Bethlehem being mostly Christian? Wow. And von Zinzendorf. <laughs> yeah, so what guy? That was right. one person right. that double clapped. All right. All right. <laughs> Don't blame me if you're wrong. Well, now wait. Now before you get to the finish line here, yeah. I'm just going to say, that if you are wrong, yeah. the, this is the first time that virtually everyone in the room except two people yeah. are going to sweep you. This will be the cleanest sweep yes, of all time in ever. a live show. Well, it'll be the cleanest sweep ever. either way. Yeah. yeah, either way. That's yeah. who knew you were so dirty, Steve. That is correct. All right, we'll start. We'll take them. We'll take them in order. Item number one: There are 39 cities in the world with the name Bethlehem. 28 of them in the U.S. Virtually everyone except for one guy thinks that this one is science, and this one. Is science. There it is. I found a list. I counted them. That's how many there are. (laughs) Actually, I thought there would be more. Yeah. I I counted it too, but then I was like, maybe not two nine two eighty. Probably just the one. Yeah. That's right. The real one. Got it. All right. Don't need to there's not even it's not even that interesting. Let's move on. I know, but what I should have made that one to fix it. All right, number two, the original Bethlehem in the Middle East has a mostly Christian population today, but it's under Israeli control. You all, virtually all of you think this one is the fiction. Say it, brother. And say it. Say it. Is the fiction. Yes! 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 Thank you. That was awesome. Evan is correct. It's in the West Bank. It's in the West Bank. It's under Palestinian, Palestinian authority. Okay. But also, its population is mostly Muslim. Muslim oh, wait. Yeah, so I, so I, why didn't you say I was correct? You, Did you say Muslim? I just said that. I, I you said Evan was correct. Yes, well, he was. Evan's reasoning was the correct reasoning. Yes. And so both, I made both things wrong. Okay. To make it easy. I was thinking yes, of doing one or the other. Right? Oh, to make it easy. Yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Retro deck. You have no advantage. Yeah. Clear. Yeah. Two and three were kind of like. So, um, <laughs> Bethlehem, you know, right in the middle of the you know, Middle East there has been a very contentious yeah. city mm-hmm. over its very, very long history. Yeah. And it's, you know, been, been under various, uh, control. Most recently, you know, Muslim. And, uh, it is now under Palestinian authority. Um, there is a, a, Christian church in Bethlehem, and there are three denominations which share it, and it's supposed to be the literal birthplace of Jesus, like the the, the manger, manger, yeah, where where he was born. So they they just comfortably, I think it's Greek Orthodox, Greek uh, Orthodox, Catholic, and one other one which I can't remember. Um, Do you know the latter story? 
The what? The latter? The latter in that particular church. No, Someone no. in the 16th century put a ladder someplace where it wasn't supposed to be. One of the factions of the yeah. church put a ladder against a wall that wasn't their wall. For the last 400 years or whatever it is, they've basically been saying, move your ladder. And they're like, no. <laughs> Still there. So like, they don't want to cross over into the side that it's not, they're not supposed to be on or to, to, to sort of, it? to retrieve it. And the ones who, on whose it's leaning against no, don't want it. They have to be unanimous. Oh, is, is that what it is? Okay, right. But literally, this thing has been sitting there for, I don't know, 300 years, 400, like, it's, it's, it's centuries, this, this ladder. Yeah, there's a picture of it from 1860. Okay, right, has been sitting in the same spot. I, 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 I can handle like grab the ladder. Come on. That's what I mean. It's like, we're like, religions will never get along. We will never get along, like, in terms of that. In, yeah, I love it. I love it. George, we just have to educate them. That's true. That's true. That's true. One, You're right. One, You're right. One, talk to them respectfully. Yes. Yes. One jam article. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, be, that's just, move your ladder, please. That's, that's my ivory tower. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Number three, Bethlehem PA was founded on Christmas Eve, 1741, Heck by yeah. David Nishman and Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. You knew that. This is like the number one tourist fact when you start any tour in Bethlehem for any reason. It's like, did you know Bethlehem was named Christmas Eve? It's like, yeah, that's like, and that's the thing. What, what, who were these people? What do you know So about Count von Zinzendorf was a, what's now... Uh, what uh, the Czech region? He was one of the early Moravians. He was a Moravian. Yeah. So the early Moravians came over, and the Moravians actually—I've talked about this on my show, and I've written about this. The Moravians are, were exceedingly progressive. So Count von Zinzendorf, uh, uh, also Comenius, who was a, a, a scholar and educator. This is stuff going to again 17th, 18th century. Uh, they believed that uh, women should have educations. They should be wow, able to right. read books and learn things. Educate the ladies. Educate the ladies. <laughs> they believed that uh, not only was education of the mind important, but education of the body. So physical activity was important. They had this uh, uh, one of my favorite spots here in Bethlehem. And if you do get a chance, uh, go check it out. It's called God's Acre, and it's right. It's not even half a mile from here. It's up off of Main Street, and it's a graveyard. And what the Moravians were really big about was they believed in that, that in, in death and in life we're all equal in God's eye. And only, only God can sort of affect the landscape and make monuments to someone with a mountain, with a sunset, with whatever. So as you look at this graveyard, it's about an acre and a half, I think. It's totally flat. So it just looks like a field if you're looking at it from the side. And as you approach it from the front, you realize that every tombstone is flat on the ground. So you have these little flat, they're all the same size. And people were buried in the order they died. So you, which was interesting because, what, what does that mean? Reasonable, so, right? No, what does that mean? So it's better burying them out of order. Well, no, but like, so you literally have, you know, in a, in a 17th century graveyard, you have an Indian, a Native American, buried next to a preacher, which was Unheard of. And they're just all in chronicle, chronological and, order. And, and yeah, yeah, and then women were allowed to be buried with their maiden names. Mm-hmm. So to extend their, their family name. And they didn't use suppositories for anything. For anything. <laughs> for anything. So the Moravians were pretty hip in terms yeah. of, in terms of that. And so it was a miserable Christmas Eve. And at the time, they had just sort of, they were going through really rough patch. And Zinzendorf and the mayor, the other guy's name, who was the mayor at the Nitchman. time, Nitchman, Nitchman, was just like, Let's call it Bethlehem. And it was like, 
Yay. And they felt good for like 20 minutes and they realized, you know, so, but that's, yeah, that's a major big story. So Zinzendorf, the, uh, Moravian College, which is here, it's all Zinzendorf Hall and Zinzendorf Sandwich and Zinzendorf this and Zinzendorf that. Yeah, but did he say let's call it Bethlehem or let's call it Bethlehem? Yeah, I wonder, you know, in, in German, or the, or the sort of Czech, I don't know, the, the, it wasn't quite German, wasn't quite Czech, wasn't quite whatever language they were speaking. I wonder what the actual pronunciation is. Does anybody is, yeah. speak any of those languages here? In German? What's Bethlehem in German? Does anybody know? Uh, Bethlehem. Bethlehem. All right. So it's, 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 yeah, it's Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so there it is. And it's, and you know, they did that. They named the town. It's right where the Hotel Bethlehem is on the, on the corner. It's just right there. They had a little, a little uh, uh, gathering house. Yeah, yeah. And it's right there. It's really cool. A lot of history in this place. Zinzenden. Zinzenburg. Zinzenburg. And then at Christmas, it's very, it's really lovely. So. Sweep. That was cool. Sweep. I'm good. I'm good. Love it. I swept you guys last week, so I'm balancing. I'm doing. Just because I wasn't there. Thanos has to balance. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Science with Thanos. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, so they were all wrong. Um, all right. Now what? Hello. Yeah. Come on. It's, it's the relatives of Zinzendorf. <laughs> You're saying the town hall. It's Bethlehem. Should we do like a one question before we? Because you have, literally have eight a minutes. Yeah. Do, then before we do the quote. Does anybody want to ask audience? us a question? Oh yeah. Is there anybody who has a burning question quick, quick, quick. in the audience? For us. Nobody. This is no, not. Right, you're All right, you're, here we go. Really good one. Come up here so somebody can shove a microphone in your face. Well, so thank you. I guess what can we do to utilize the knowledge that you guys have kind of imparted on us in many ways? Look at the impact that you've had. So what can we do in kind of going off and starting our own little nodes of helping out? And so like I'm a medical communications guy and wanna kind of help out and kind of get yeah, yeah. my own career in this area going. So, yeah, guerrilla skeptics, we're being told, is one thing. There's, there's, <laughs> there are lots of nodes where you can function. Certainly, you know, Wikipedia, guerrilla skeptics is, is one way. Running local skeptical groups is another. Um, being active online. Honestly, I, I, I like people to just be the skeptic in their world, whatever it is, wherever you work, you know, your people in your life. It, you can do it, you know, you get known as, oh, that's, the skeptic in the group, right? What, what does he think about things or what does she think about things? That's fine. You fill that role. And then, you know, you think of the things that no one's thought of before. I really can't tell you what needs to be done because if I knew, I would probably be doing it already. So it's like do the things that you can do yeah. or that, that mesh well with whatever other profession or, or, or expertise that you have. Or what, you know, what I, little subset of this that you're passionate about? What, yeah. you know, there's well, he so said many... he does medical communication, so, you know, there's a lot that you can do there. Submit articles to science-based medicine. We're looking for new authors. I think the most impactful thing you said, though, was being, you know, committing to being the skeptic in your group of friends yeah. or your family yeah. or whatever. Like, it's a combination of learning about skepticism and then learning how, the patience to communicate it well, like, you know, just these basic communication skills on how not to be angry and, you know, the things we've talked about on the show a million times. It's in our book. It is, it is, it's, you know, look, I've got, you know, I think, I don't know how much information we've given, but I know a flat earther very well, better than I want to know. I, I, it's, I can't deal with it. I freak out. But I mean, even, even 
someone like me has been doing this for over 20 years. Like, we gotta, Hard. you gotta yeah. chill out. Well, you know, also, we gotta learn how to communicate. I think that, like, there's a difference between, let's say you're operating on Facebook. Let's say that's where your family and friends are, and that's where you feel like you'll have a bigger impact. There's a difference between, like, going in and needling people in, in the comment sections of their posts, yeah. and posting your own, I think, um, positive yet skeptical content. You know, yeah. so, so there are ways to be proactive without seeming like you're trying to undermine everybody around, yeah. around you. And I think that that's often much more effective. Right. And there's also lots of things you could do. Like, for example, people often ask me, oh, I went to see my doctor and he offered me homeopathy. Mm-hmm. It's like, did you tell them that your reaction to that? And most people don't. But if you do, if you say, listen, I'm uncomfortable with this because this is pseudoscience and I'm worried, you know, about a physician that prescribes pseudoscience. They need that feedback because, yeah. you know, believe me, the people who are like, oh, I love that you're so open and you're prescribing these natural whatever they think it is, they give them the positive feedback. So giving, like, skeptical, con- constructive feedback to everyone, to your boss, to your doctor, to polite, your lawyer. Polite, polite, constructive. <laughs> polite, no, it's, constructive. It's I said constructive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that is really you know, that's really important, and it's like we have to just be the voice of skepticism in the world. And it goes over well sometimes. It does, I mean, right? I recently had a physical, it, yeah, yeah, and my doctor. I was just saying, oh, I was talking. We talked about this on the show. Like, I got like a body mat, a body fat not. thing, yeah, and I got like a fitness tracker. And I was starting to ask him about how can I better measure these things, and and he was giving me some, you know, opinions about vitamins and things like that, and. And I was just like, you know, I kind of don't want to buy expensive urine and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it was so funny that, like, when I started talking a certain way, and I did it with my gynecologist recently, too, and both of them were like, oh, thank God. Like, they were like, oh, I'm totally with you. Like, and it yeah. almost, I could see that there's certain things that they feel like they have to do right. because otherwise their patients feel like they didn't do their job. Yeah. But you could tell the minute, like, the, the air, like, came back in the room. They're like, oh, we can just talk like normal people, yeah, yeah, which yeah. was great to yeah. see. And maybe it'll reinforce that they can be like that around yeah, more yeah. people. I've, I've been in the same band for 21 years, and it took about 8 to 10 years to be known as the guy who, like, you come check stuff with. You know what I mean? Where it was like, because I would constantly be sort of saying, oh, no, that doesn't quite work that way. Or actually, well, that, yeah, not to be the well-actually guy, but to sort of, Preface everything by saying, I understand why you think that. Mm. It seems like that's right. It seems like having a bunch of your, your kids' friends over and they're all, all getting sick together and then like, it kind of seems like it would make sense. But yeah. you know what, what research shows, blah, 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 blah. And so now, like, it, I am so excited when someone comes to me and says like, George, I read this thing. This is this is bullshit, right? And I'll be like, yes, it's bullshit. Oh yeah, my I wonder God, how yes. many people in the audience, I'm totally that person yeah. with a lot of my friends. I'm sure a lot of you are. How many people in the audience are totally that person? Yeah, I love that. Well, Single clap. Okay. I got to tell you guys a cool story. I just before this weekend because I'm going on a cruise with my wife on Sunday. Yay. It's our first. It's our first vacation since we got married and had kids. Like this is like an adult oh. vacation. <laughs> oh man. And she had to like drag me into it because I'm like, oh, you know, I'm just like I'm just conditioned to. I don't want to say be miserable, but it's like, you know, the grind. It's still grind. You know, so I'm just very conditioned to just get up and keep doing it, man. So anyway, I get my hair cut, and something remarkable happened. The girl that cuts my hair started listening to the podcast. And she's like, so what do you think? She asked me a question. We were talking about, I can't remember exactly what, what it was. We were talking about something, and she was just like, so I was listening, listening to your show, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. And I try not to, like, I don't want to be like, oh, my God, that's awesome. I'm like, ah, that's cool. And she was like, so what was this thing? What do you think about it? So we talked about a news item. I think it was one that I did, too. So I was like, yeah, yeah I talked about it. I'm like, yeah, it's bullshit. And you're just kind of being cool about it. And I, I just remember being like, that is awesome. Yeah. And I think 
you know, you don't have to have a podcast to do it. Like being the thing that you said, I was polite when I first talked with her about it. I just would mention that I'm, yeah, yeah, I like skepticism. I like critical thinking. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't hitting anyone over the head. I've been going to her for a year and a half and it finally clicked. And now the girl that cuts my hair is a skeptic and I'm like, I'm so happy about it. It's weird. But I think getting these minor successes, but it was the patience. It was me going, I just don't give a shit anymore. Like, I just got to, I'm just going to keep trying and it's not going to be like this. We thought 20 years ago that this was going to be a lot easier. That people, of course that's correct and we're going to do it, right? Now we realize, man, this is going to take, well, first off, it's never going to, it's like, it's never going to fully end, but it's so difficult to push this particular ball forward because in a lot of ways it's not fun. In a lot of ways you're the asshole. In a lot of ways, you know, you're saying things that people don't want to hear. We're demystifying and we're, 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 you know, like we're talking about Thanos and we reverse engineer a movie. And it's kind of like it takes the fun out of it to a certain degree. No, it does it because it's a thought experiment. That's I know, the but, fun part of it. But that's what a lot of people think of us, right? I know. That's what I'm saying. Uh, so and just, and just by being nice and not being assholes. That's a huge part it, of it. It's actually yeah, sure. it works. really important. So that's the thing. Like we, you, The full circle is like it's the only way that it works. No one has ever won anything on the Internet by Typing in caps. Well, and, and I think the important thing, too, is that, and it sort of speaks to what I was saying before about the comments versus making the posts, is that your job is not to just go in and debunk everything. Your job is also to inspire awe in people about things that are really cool. Yeah. And I think that if you you try your best to approach it that way, there are going to be times when you're like, yeah, it doesn't really work that way. But if you can, did you know that? That's so much more compelling, and I think it, it, it helps you connect right. with people You're much more. Yeah, I totally yes. agree. Yes. Totally then just agree, knocking yeah. their yeah. entrenched ways. That is out the, of their that's minds. the 1970s skeptic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That arrogant, like, hey, whatever, you know? Yeah. It's like, you obviously don't know what yeah. I know. Yeah. No, yeah, we gotta, that, we gotta that be, work that well. we have to be mindful of the fact that we're talking to people that are, that are, they have, they're, this is all legitimate. It, it doesn't mean we pull our punches on nonsense, though. That's no. where, the, that's where there's a fine line. It's like, yeah, that is nonsense, and I'm gonna call it that, and that's what it is, but the people are just people. I'd like to remind everyone of what happened here today. <laughs> okay. Hold up that broom, baby. Don't forget, April 26th, the day of the sweep. The no-show sweep. The no-show sweep. You know, we could be we could be like in Australia eight months from now. We could just be be like the no-show sweep. All right, Evan, you got a quote for us? (laughs) (laughs) Tweet hashtag no-show sweep. To be matter of fact about the world is to blunder into fantasy and dull fantasy at that, as the real world is strange and wonderful. Yes, it is. Spoken by Robert Heinlein. Cool. Oh, yeah. Robert Heinlein, American science fiction author, aeronautical engineer, retired naval officer, often called the dean of science fiction writers. He was among the first to emphasize scientific accuracy in his fiction and was thus a pioneer of the subgenre of hard science fiction. Very cool. Hard. Hard science fiction. Thank you all for joining me today. Thanks, Steve. George, thanks, thanks you, for George. setting up this wonderful thank thing. Thanks for us. We love it. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Woo-hoo. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions. 
dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. And don't forget, KiwiCo projects are designed to spark creativity, tinkering, and learning in kids of all ages. They make learning about science, technology, engineering, arts, and math fun. They're on a mission to empower kids not just to make a project, but to make a difference. KiwiCo is offering SGU listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit kiwico.com skeptics.